listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. You are listening to Beyond the SIG, a prescription for transformative pharmacy care. Season two of Beyond the SIG is supported by the Pennsylvania Department of Health in partnership with the Pennsylvania Pharmacists Association. Funding was provided through the Preventative Health and Health Services Block Grant from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The contents of this podcast are solely the responsibility of the presenters and do not necessarily represent the official views of the Pennsylvania Department of Health or the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The Pennsylvania Pharmacists Association's podcast, Beyond the SIG, is a proud member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the second season of Beyond the SIG podcast giving a shot about diabetes. My name is Rachel, and I'm hosting today's episode along with my co-host, Isabel. How are you doing today, Isabel? I am doing great, Rachel. We are at the end of our residency. It's been a long time coming. We are on our 12th and final episode of the season, and I am so grateful to have been able to do this podcast, not by myself, but with you. I feel like we've had such a great time, and... I'm so grateful to PPA, the Pennsylvania Pharmacists Association, and the Pharmacy Podcast Network for helping us put this together. Yeah, yeah, this has been such a great experience. I've learned so much from doing this podcast, and I've just really enjoyed all of our guests that have come on and hearing their stories and just learning more about diabetes education. So this has been a great experience, and it's crazy that residency is already wrapping up. We have about a week and a half left of residency. Absolutely. And again, I'm so grateful to have been able to do it with you and have a co-host and actually meet in person. I know that was so great when we got to meet finally at the APHA conference. And yeah, I'm really grateful that, you know, we've become friends through this too. So absolutely. And so many people that we've been able to touch and talk about diabetes with and so many amazing guests. So we're very grateful to everyone that has helped make this happen over the last year. Thank you to all of you. Yeah, yeah, thank you everyone. Um, So I'm very excited for today's episode. I feel like it's going to be a very unique conversation because it's focused on a population of patients that we haven't really talked about yet. So I'm really excited to welcome our guest, Dr. Ryan Ray. He is a a diverse clinical pharmacist and a certified diabetes care and education specialist who works specifically with the severely mentally ill or SMI population. As a clinical staff pharmacist and diabetes specialist for the Mental Health Center of Denver, which is abbreviated MHCD, Ryan's responsibility is to collaborate with other mental health staff providers, such as nurses, psychiatrists, case managers, therapists, and outside physicians to help his patients manage their diabetes and help them understand the long-term complications of poor control. In addition to his staff role at the pharmacy, he also has integrated diabetes care and education into M. HCD's Integrative Primary Care Unit. 
So Ryan is focused on addressing health inequities, and he has I, that he has identified over his years of experience with the SMI population. This work will include creating a new curriculum to teach DSMES to the SMI population, as well as he's also focused on advancing technology and incorporating the currently available products, such as different CGM devices, into his practice. So welcome, Ryan, to our podcast. We are so happy to have you. That was a great introduction, Rachel. Um, I just wanted to say one thing. We are now, we've rebranded. MHCD is now known as WellPower. Oh, And so we're getting away from the stigma of mental health. Um, We're looking to treat the whole person. And it's not just about mental health. It's about true well-being. Yeah, I love that. If you're not well, if you're truly not well, then it's hard to it's hard to take on anything. And having a psych diagnosis and diabetes is very difficult to manage. Yeah, definitely. Um, I also wanted. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to give you guys a shout out for doing something so incredibly amazing. Not only for the profession of pharmacy, but for diabetes education. Um, you guys have developed a platform and you've had some very honorable guests on. I'm honored myself to be here. I'm a huge advocate for diabetes and addressing a lot of the inequities and social determinants of health, which we see a very lot of in the SMI population. So yeah. kudos to you guys. I'm so just glad you even considered to have me on, but I just want to advocate and tell my story. so we can build around it and be better all the way around. Thank you, Ryan. Um, Yeah, we are just so happy to have you on. Isabel and I are both very passionate about advocating for patients' well-being, for diabetes education. So yeah, I would just love to hear more about your story, Um, you know, your background in diabetes education. And then also, I'm curious, how did you get specifically involved with working with the SMI population? Yeah, good, good question. Um, I I ended up with WellPower not knowing I was going to be working psych long term. It was not in my plan. It happened. I fell in love with the population. I felt, as I learned more, I just grew more curious about why does this make people do things that way, or how come I see this person doing that, but we can't replicate it over here. And there's you know there's a huge variety of mental illnesses. And all of them have their challenges. Um, I would say even an able-bodied mental state has difficulty dealing with diabetes. So we're dealing with a population that has, I don't know if you, two strikes against them, you know, and it's very difficult to manage. So we need to really do our best to wrap our arms around them, give them support, show them the way, motivate them, keep them on the track and help guide them a better life and less complications. Um, I, so I started working at WellPower as a staff pharmacist, um, and we were approached by University of Colorado School of Pharmacy faculty to explore some grant opportunities uh, specifically focused on diabetes control in the SMI population. Um, our initial goal was to come up with a project that we could reduce clinical inertia 
And the definition of clinical inertia is simply the failure to start or intensify therapy in diabetes when it's needed. Hmm. And there's a lot of reasons clinical inertia happens, a lot of reasons why we're afraid to start medications and people who are not, uh, you know, may have poor adherence or there's just a whole slew of issues that, that go around this. And so there's a lot of, I see a lot of hold off on intensifying therapy because it could be a greater risk to their health. You know, if they can't manage their hypos appropriately or this or that. Um, so anyway, we, we looked at a project and we asked ourselves, what can we do to, to ask the, the smallest amount of effort from our population and get the biggest bang for our buck, right? And so clinical inertia in diabetes, as I saw it, is, you know, the doctor prescribing finger stick checks, preprandial, you know, before every meal and at bedtime, we get data sets back that are just, you know, nothing matches up. I assume if it's on there and there's no note that it's preprandial, and we all know that making assumptions lead us to the wrong place. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. And so it's been very difficult trying to trying to figure out what's going on or who who can we who can we move the quickest or who's the highest risk. Um, should we should we be focusing on A1Cs that are above nine in high intensity? Let's see if we can move them down or. Should we be focused more on a prevention and you know more education? Um, and so there's a couple different ways we could have gone with that. Um, but anyway, we came up with a pro with a process called structured glucose testing. And if you can imagine, you know, being asked to test your blood glucose four times a day, and you have a notebook full of data, and you've done exactly what your doctor asked. You have 15 minutes with your provider. Chances are not very high that your provider is going to go through that log, pull out averages, pull out averages by period, pull out outliers, identify hypos and whether they're treated correctly. And so that is clinical inertia too, because we're asking patients to do so much, but what's the return on the investment? Um, they're asked to do this test, their fingers hurt. They, they don't truly understand what's going on. So they depend on the provider to to guide them and we do our best to shore up and make sure apples are apples and oranges are oranges or else that could be very dangerous. Um, so we came up with a structured glucose testing that was an intensive one week testing where we looked, we did a pre and post two hour post prandial for breakfast for two days and then pre and two hour post for lunch for two days and pre and two hour post dinner for two days. At the end of that collection, we've only done for what eight, I don't know, a handful of data collection, right? With that very simple method, we were able to pull out, are there huge outliers? Are there numbers grossly above 200? Um, does what their A1, their current A1C, does that match with what they're showing here? In a, in a quick data collection and looking at that small data set, we were able, we were able to determine can we make an intervention? Can we reach out and make a recommendation to the provider and, and make a change in between their normal appointments? That again is breaking clinical inertia. Um, as pharmacists, we have much more availability. Um, you can walk up to me at the counter, hand me a blood glucose log and I can look at it. I may not be able to, to do everything we need to do at that moment, 
but I have students with me all the time and, and that's, I'll get into that later, but they're able to help me continue the clinic. I'm only doing the clinic one day a week and well, we haven't even got there yet. So with this structured glucose testing design, we know diabetes is a heavily data-driven disease state and we're highly dependent on the data we receive in order to make therapeutic changes. Otherwise, we're at the mercy of just a global A1C marker and patient self-reporting, which in my population isn't always reliable. Um, and so we're really dependent on that, those numbers that are either in their meter or that they put down on the log. Um, by, by going through this structured glucose testing, um, we were, we were able to quickly identify individuals who uncontrolled A1Cs needed a quick intervention, um, reached out to the provider and, and got a, a med change or a dose increase or, you know, a quicker appointment. And we were able to make changes quicker. Like I said, if you're going to the doctor once every three months and changes are only happening once every three months, imagine how quick we can get somebody from an A1C 12 down to an A1C 7.5 if they're meeting with pharmacists every other week. We can make so many dose changes, and especially if we're on insulin or injectable therapy, we can titrate them you know, three, four times before they see their provider. And so that's killing the clinical inertia. It's just really making this go at the pace it should without any any other outside influences, if you will. I don't know how else to say that. It's just speeding up the process, allowing us to make our interventions and contribute to their overall well-being. Yeah, I think it's really cool that you guys created that and put it forward. And I mean, we're supposed to be changed, or we can change insulin dosing every three to five days. So, I mean, that's literally what it right. says. So I think it's cool that you guys exactly. have been able to, to try to do that. I guess you kind of touched on it, but I really want to go a little bit further into what your role currently is and what you're currently doing, because I think it's really special. If you could let our listeners know a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I'm a staff pharmacist at Wellpower for the most part. So four days a week, I am a staff pharmacist on the floor at our community mental health center. and. I have one day that I spend in our integrated primary care clinic um, as a diabetes, you know, a certified diabetes educator, um, working with referrals from our primary care, um, working with referrals from case managers who've identified a new patient who has uncontrolled diabetes. So Wellpower has a, a really unique service model in that not only does it provide psychiatry services and counseling, it's really a broader, wide wraparound to make sure that everybody that walks through the door is receiving adequate care. Um, we're identifying social determinants of care and providing resources to make sure A, they're safe, have somewhere to sleep and have food. But at the same time, we wanna make sure that their well-being is up to par. Um, because without a lot of these ancillary support intact they're they're not doing well and you know we can measure their numbers and you can say their diabetes is good but measure their overall well-being and they're not happy they're not thriving um, we want to see people happy and thriving so whatever we can do to, to make that happen uh, well power is really unique in that we do have an integrated primary care clinic 
I, I don't know of many more community mental health centers that do have an integrated primary care clinic, but I think that helps us stand apart because we are aware, cognizant of all the secondary issues that psych treatment has on people. Um, one of the biggest being the metabolic issues secondary to the psych meds that we use. They're just, there's no way to get around it. You know, the drugs work awesome from the neck up, but have side effects from the neck down that we need to address. And so it's a lot of balancing of which hands heavier, you know, and dealing with the seriously mentally ill, you know, we need to make sure they're functional, stable, in a good place, and then we can address all the other issues secondary to that. Um, so by having the integrated primary care clinic, you know, with me taking on the, the project of the structured glucose monitoring and recognizing that this was a much bigger issue than I had even ever even thought of. Started looking into, you know, population dynamics and you know how big is this? You know, like I said, a third of psych patients will likely eventually develop diabetes. That's scary. Yeah. Um, and so, how much how much could we do if we had a program set for you know the diabetes prevention program? There's that that course is 10 times longer than diabetes self-management education. Yeah. And so where do we need to be spending our, our focus? Um, because we have very high intensity, out of control diabetics that we need to address immediately to prevent complication or even worse. Um, but there's also a large population that can benefit from not crossing the threshold and really living life to the fullest. So Ryan, let me ask you a clarification question before we sure. move on. Um, do you mind clarifying to our listeners what includes the severely mentally ill population? What kind of diagnoses are included in that? Great question. So the severely mentally ill are our patient population. They've they've seen primary care. They've you know they've tried many things unsuccessfully and now they've landed in a specialty where we're gonna we're gonna look at them as a whole and, and see what we can do for them um, so within the severely mentally ill we have schizoaffective disorder schizophrenia which are both of those disorders have non-logical thought processes um, non-linear thinking and so the logic isn't intact and so a lot of diabetes is cause and effect right mm. you need to know where you were where you are and where you're going and if you can't line those three things up and have logic about hey I was I was at 300 I'm getting ready to eat what should I do now you got to understand the, the linear process of how the brain of a schizophrenic works and so we have to be able to provide concrete examples um, much different than you would find in, in a regular DSMES hmm. curriculum. Um, so you also have like bipolar, you know, to the extremes, you have major depressive disorder, we have traumatic brain injuries, um, borderline personality disorder. These are all things that are very difficult to navigate the system the health system on your own if, if you are under one of these umbrellas um, it, yeah. it requires additional help 
And yeah. so when I, you know, when I was learning about diabetes management, one of the one of the big chapters in DSMES is how to address depression in a diabetic. Mm-hmm. And my pop, I have, I have full support staff for that, right? Yeah. I have to figure out how do I deal, how do I manage diabetes in, in a population with severe depression, schizophrenia, bipolar, and a whole slew of other, you know, resources that they don't have access to. Um, and so we've, we've tried to really come up with a solution to really address these problems that we're seeing. Yeah. So now that we know a little bit more about the patient population that you serve, can you tell us um, a little bit more about the structure of your DSMES classes? Yeah, so we actually partnered up with the University of Colorado School of Pharmacy. They helped us uh, develop a curriculum, and this was during the time of COVID, right at the start of COVID. And so we needed to develop something that was going to be deliverable via telehealth and also be something that we could do face-to-face in person. So I could have two people in clinic and one person on Zoom doing a telehealth and, and we can run a PowerPoint and have, you know, a structured laid out curriculum with appropriate, you know, question and answer sessions. And, you know, it, there's so much benefit to having DSMES taught in a group setting because if you get if you just stay out of it and let the other people talk, they're gonna they're gonna bring up so many so much misinformation, and that's where you're able to step in and help kind of clarify or or put them back on the path and or say no, that's a myth. You know, here here's a better idea, or have you thought of this? Um, and it's really just shoring up their information. Um, based on what they're telling us. I know you talked a little bit about what your classes are like. I know it can be hard to do group classes. So tell us a little bit about your um, solo classes and some of the things that you're teaching and what they're able to retain and then kind of what that team looks like for you. Sure. Well, we found, and I, I knew this before we even started doing DSMES. We had a, we are accredited now for DSMES. We did that over COVID as well. But we had a, uh, I don't know if either of you are familiar with the conversation map model of diabetes education. Yeah. It's, it's basically a big, you know, it's a, a big board game that you put out and you have six or eight people sit around the table. And it, it's kind of like Candyland. You go through the, you go through and you talk about, okay, here's a bunch of luggage, and we talk about depression and stress and stressors or triggers and emotions and things that affect. And then we get to medications and like, what's the importance of that and monitoring and and through those group classes, they were they were taught in a series, right? So if you didn't go to suit to the first session, you couldn't start at the second one without having too many questions that would disrupt the group. And so initially we would have large groups of six to eight people, and we were able to get through maybe one or two classes as a group before it started falling apart. Um, Some of that was due to interpatient 
variability or personality traits. Um, some people are paranoid and don't like to be in the room with other people that are showing aggressive or body language. You know, some, there's a lot of trauma that's been in these people's lives. And so we got to be cognizant of that. And you never know what triggers or what traumas somebody. So group classes have been very difficult to do because of that. We've tried to be more cognizant and try and actually pair people that we think would be a, a better match. And even then, it's still, you know, in the in the psych setting, the no-show rate is somewhere probably around 50% based on missing rides or not being able to catch the bus or poor weather, um, so many factors. Um, and so we, we tried so long to keep that group session going, but I don't, it, it's very difficult to keep it moving without going back and touching on information other people are getting bored and so we've we've kind of had to pivot a little bit and do this on a we, we're trying to individualize our our education as much as we can and so if the group session's not working well, we will step out and find a way to to meet with them individually so we can hammer down some of these issues that are clearly not resonating with them and that's that's really the most important thing i mean you can sit there and stand up in front of a group of people and talk for an hour but if they can't leave and tell you anything about what you talked about there's no value in that and so it's really a value-based you know what are we getting what kind of return are we getting and like you said you know what are they retaining and i'm finding that it's taken two to three times as long to teach this population the basics or the nuances or why you know you can't take your insulin 20 minutes after you've eaten right yeah and and that's evidenced as we get into the continuous glucose monitoring yeah. and all the new technology and all the great things coming with that um my team is comprised of obviously this is where it gets pretty interesting too um we, we share space with denver health which is the bigger hospital um, so they have a primary care provider in our primary care clinic, as well as a well-power provider. Um, and so we can reach a lot of people in that primary clinic. Um, and so not only do we have the primary care staff, we also have a certified general health educator, and she supports me in a lot of the nutrition, uh, food planning, grocery shopping lists. Um, how to make the most out of your money. How do you make food stamps stretch? How do you shop on a budget? How do you eat healthy on a budget? I have a lot of resources that are dedicated to getting out of the mindset of you don't have to go to Whole Foods, you don't have to go to Sprouts to eat healthy. It's really breaking down you know, the components of the carbs, fats, and proteins where we derive all of our energy and, and how out of balance is that? And so a lot of it, we have to go back to basic nutrition and um, getting people moving and active again is huge. So we have a certified personal trainer who's on our team. And so if I, if I have somebody who's on an oxygen tank, not very ambulatory, we need to get this person moving, but we need to do so in a safe manner. We can't just tell them to go start walking laps. And so I'll have my personal trainer do a home visit and 
he'll do a whole assessment on what can we do. Um, there's chair exercises we can do. You have a vacuum. You can vacuum your house every day, right? That's good exercise. Yeah. Um, it's just thinking outside of the box. What can we do in a day that you're not thinking about that is going to have some positive impact? And then, you know, trying to, trying to build that into their mental health and saying, hey, you know, the exercise is going to be good for you. Get out, get out of your, your space that you're in, get some fresh air, you know, use it as a therapy session, but also do it with purpose and, and you'll see your numbers change. You're going to lose weight. You're going to get better insulin sensitivity. You're going to feel better after you're done. And I try and get this ball of momentum rolling and just picking up on real quick wins that I can get. Because once I get that ball rolling, subconsciously, the people I'm working with, it's harder for them to screw up. They don't want to screw up because they've worked so hard to get that five pounds off them. Or, you know, if we're talking about continuous glucose monitors, I can I can elicit one behavioral change and I can with the glucose management indicator, it's not a it's not a statistical marker yet, but I'm sure it will be soon. We can we can tell in a matter of two weeks what what how did that behavior change? What did that do to your A1C? And oftentimes it's so significant that people don't go back to drinking pop because I just showed them in two weeks, look, change your A1C by three. It hasn't been three months yet. We don't have an official draw, but if you continue this, that will be your A1C. And so we can get real quick wins. I just attached to quick wins and, and continue to build upon those. And like I said, once you get that snowball rolling, it's hard to change direction. And and so next time they, they do sit down to eat, they're subconsciously, oh man, I went for that walk today, it's so hard. I Maybe I shouldn't do this, right? But then you got that whole emotional attachment to food. And if you're having a bad day, you know, it's okay, you can do that. Just get back on the horse as quick as you can. I love the so we gotta, collaboration that you guys have there because I actually have not yet heard anyone on the podcast say that they work with a um, with a personal trainer. So that's really cool. Well, and we were lucky to have him on board because he came from a grant as well. Um, that was a part of a weight loss study through Dartmouth University. And he's been on board for three additional years since the grant ended. You know, so we're trying to get access to some of the community YMCAs, uh, the gyms at discount memberships, um, people who don't have the ability to ambulate or aren't very mobile, we'll get them in, you know, if they like swimming, we'll get them into the into a pool. Um, we got fitness bands that, you know, we can exercise some of the larger muscle groups and get some, some good calorie burn and, and some cardio going without ever leaving the house. So it's just, I just want to get a, a pouring of ideas coming in. What can we do the, to get quick wins, you know, that, that stay attached to the people for life because it's lifestyle changes that we're looking for. It's not diets or anything. We're really looking to change lifestyles. I know that you have already talked 
a little bit about some of the barriers that you've run into with this specific patient population um, with the severely mentally ill. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about these challenges. Um, so far, you've talked about the challenges in group classes, the challenges with health literacy, um, social determinants of health. So what challenges can a pharmacist kind of expect to run into with this certain patient population? And what are some things that you have found to be successful in overcoming these challenges? One of the biggest things that jumps out at me is just the, the time and effort that it requires to really hammer this in so they understand it. Some, some folks pick it up pretty quick and they can read a graph and can tell you, oh yeah, I can see what's going on. Others, you do the teach back method and they kind of show it to you right, but then you ask them a question and it's like, hold on, don't leave. You can't leave it. I need 10 more minutes. This is not safe. Um, and so recognizing that once, I've lost a lot of sleep when people walk out of the office because I'm not sure what they're going to do with their insulin or yeah. if they're going to administer it correctly or if they're going to treat a hypo correctly. So my patient population isn't the first group of people to pick up the phone and reach out and say, hey, I'm having trouble, I need help. So active follow-up has been really important, making sure we're checking in and following up. And it's not just me doing the checkup and following. I'm with our, with our grand scope of services that we offer at Wellpower, I'm able to truly integrate primary care into the psych setting. And so I can pass on, you know, the difficulties or the, the things that I'm working with, with this individual and have the case manager maybe reinforce that with them while they're out shopping with them or helping them go to the next appointment and having conversations. Are you checking your, you know, how's your med adherence? Um, are you making all your appointments? And so we're communicating with case managers who are communicating and we're communicating with psychiatrists. And it really takes a whole team. And like I said, you just gotta be actively following up to make sure that they're doing what you told them to do because if they come back in a month and they're, they've been doing the wrong thing, you're in a whole different situation. And it, you know, now they've developed bad habits. You got to undo that. Um, I've seen so many people develop aversions to insulin from improper use mm -hmm. that I have to just scrap it, start over, and say, "Listen, here's what we're going to expect. You're not going to have great control right now, but let's go low and slow, and let's make sure you don't have hypos because you get a person who starts having hypo, or they have so many that they become hypo unaware. That's very dangerous." and couple that with not having a continuous glucose monitor on them, they may not recognize that. And that's, that scares me, um, which is why I'm a huge advocate for the continuous glucose monitors at a much earlier stage than they're currently approved for, because we can, can really understand what people are doing, show them, help them out, correct them, and show them some better solutions or some substitutions that they can make that are real simple, that make big impacts. So I know you talked about some of the challenges and how you overcome those barriers, but let's now go more into a positive note because I know you have some really cool success stories to share with us. Um, so let us know 
some of the patients that you feel you've made a big impact on and some of those success stories that you've had? Sure, I'd love to. This is my favorite part. That's um, This is probably our favorite part, too. We ask this question I mean, every time. Really, really seeing the results of your hard work and knowing that you're making an impact is the most rewarding thing. I'll, I'll take that back. The most rewarding thing is when they come back and they say thank you mm. for really, really taking the time. And, and I feel so much better. I have a whole new outlook. That's what I work for. Um, I have I have three patient examples I'll go over real quick. Um, the first patient was uncontrolled diabetic for years, despite working very closely with me. She was a patient that I ran through the conversation map. She would she could recite and and tell me what her goal numbers were. What her you know, I really thought she was intact and had this nailed down. For several months, we were working together, and I was just going off her self-reported blood glucose log, which she would fill out and bring back to me. And as and as therapy changed and as things got more intense, her instructions to test her blood sugar changed, but I would still get the same blood glucose log back. And there was one day I got a log. I was asking the patient, they were on 70-30 insulin regimen, BID. So we're having them test first thing in the morning, first thing before dinner. Um, and when I got the blood glucose log, it was, there was only a single spot for each day. And every, every other day said AM and PM. And so I asked the patient, I was like, are you, tell me about this. Are you testing your blood sugar every day? Yeah. So is everything that you're testing written down? Yes. I was like, you're testing twice a day? Yes. And so I'm like, you're, you only wrote down one for every day and it's AM, PM. And I was just, it just raised red flags at that moment. And it, I started wondering what was going on there because I couldn't figure it out. She wasn't being honest with me. She, her numbers were averaging 135. She was at goal. I was patting her on the back, telling her what a good job she was doing. I got her A1C back, it was 12.3. I was floored. <laughs> I didn't even know how to bring it up because I don't want to call somebody a liar. You got to find a good way to, to have a conversation about this. This is a very dangerous situation to be in. Yeah. I'm making recommendations based off of her self-reporting, which are completely falsified. And I, I just wasn't prepared for that, to tell you the truth. Um, this patient wasn't missing appointments, would show up on time, was engaged, but it was just everything about it was false. And so we had a long discussion about how that could negatively impact her, negatively impact me. Um, a lot of bad things could happen with that. Um, I lost, lost track of her for a while after that. Um, she bounced over to a different primary care and her doctor reached out to me trying to get some more information. And I told her the difficulties that we'd had, um, the misunderstandings and that I was, I was feared, and this is clinical inertia. I had a fear of intensifying her to basal bolus regimen. She was on, at the time she was on orals and a GLP-1. Uh, she had developed pyelonephritis. They took in the hospital, they ended up DCing GLP-1, and so we kind of lost that therapy and never re-explored it. 
couple of years down the road, she's intensified quite a bit and requires basal bolus. And she was on a regimen. Her A1C was in the low to mid sixes. And I was kind of concerned about that based on where she had been living priorly in the 12s and 10s and 9s. And so I was trying to collect a lot of data and as soon as I knew she went basal bolus, I knew she was eligible for continuous glucose monitor. So I reached out and advocated her doctor, you know, get her a continuous glucose monitor. It wasn't within two weeks, I got my first data set and I could tell that she was taking an extra bolus dose of insulin at night. And I was like, when are you instructed to take insulin? She's like, she really couldn't give me a good answer. And so we had a long talk about how we're trying to mimic what the pancreas naturally does. And we're releasing insulin when we eat. And if it's not timed right, you're going to have a spike and, you know, and then you're potentially going to go low after that. But it was, it's since she's been on a continuous glucose monitor, we have moved the mountains. Um, I was able to just with, without the continuous glucose monitor, there's so many assumptions you're making. I mean, we let's, be honest, if we don't ask the patient about medication adherence, they take it 100% of the time, right? And that's simply not true. Um, so it, it didn't take long to find out that she was not only taking an extra bolus dose, but she was mismatching her insulin. She was taking it time-based. She would take her mid midday dose at three, no matter what. Um, and so I'm like, I'm like, okay. And once I, she wasn't recording when she was eating or doing insulin. So I, I, showed her the, the function on the, the meter that she could record when she's taking a dose and when she's eating. And I, I want to make sure those are lining up and they weren't. And that's how I was able to, to walk her back in. But without the continuous glucose monitor, I would, I would still would be scratching my head. What is going on? Cause I had no clue. And she couldn't tell me or verbalize that she was, she didn't know she was doing anything wrong, mm. you know? So it took that extra eye, that extra time, to really extract that information. So that's that's one of my the biofeedback on the on the CGMs are invaluable in move mountains in a matter of like two weeks. And so that that just, you know, we don't even have to put people on them long term. We can put them on them for two weeks, get a, a slew of information and make a very big therapeutic intervention get them back on their feet again and then you know keep touch with them and see when we need to intervene intervene again or do another slew of testing um my other success story that i'd like is our first dsmas patient that we ran through um when i first started seeing him he came in with an a1c of 12.4 and he was using um u500 insulin super high doses. I think wow. he was around 300 units total daily dose. Um, he was on a continuous glucose monitor, which allowed me to collect a lot of data and also determine there were some timing issues with his insulin administration. Um, our first meeting, I recall seeing one of the biggest variabilities in a period I've ever seen. It was probably three to 400 point spread over his breakfast. And we started talking about his breakfast and what he would eat and what are, what are acceptable carbohydrate loads for a meal. And I remember calculating that first breakfast with him and we eclipsed 200 grams of carbs 
in just that breakfast. And so we had a long talk about what what is what what does the body actually need to function and, and you know how can we how can we get you to start eating less and and having less emotional connections to the to the food you're eating, right? We want to look at food as fuel, even though we all have an emotional connection to ice cream. I see Rachel's shaking her head. I can't. I bet you've had nights on the couch where you've ate a pint of ice cream. Oh yeah. I have too. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're all we're all guilty of that, and, yep. and that's just something we can't erase is the emotional attachment to food. Um, anyway, working with him, we we were able to eventually get him off a U500 on a more traditional basal bolus regimen, showing that his insulin sensitivity had, had recovered. Um, we had a huge risk reduction. He has a new appreciation for moving and being active and a new fun joy in life, if you will. He's got goals. He's, he's got goals where before he didn't. It was just kind of, you know, the, the motivation had just been stripped. And so it's kind of being a cheerleader and pumping life back into these people, showing them that you're here now, but you got that way from you know, a long, long life of bad habits. Let's, let's change a couple things. And then if you're doing well with that, let's change a couple more. And if you want to go further, I'll go to the moon with you. Yeah. Um, if, if we find that in, in all honesty, and I find that if I can shore up adherence and really have good adherence conversations about the medications and make sure people are taking them every day, and we have a little conversation about what they're eating in portions. I mean, for the most part, we can control most people. And so it, the adherence piece is the biggest part that I really push. And not just from the diabetes perspective, but from the psych perspective, because we, we see poor fill rates with those as they have a lot of side effects. Um, nobody wants to take these medications. Um, and you know, when you're feeling better, tend to not take them and then it may spin you into a symptomatic yeah just fallout and so medication adherence to me is something that I just it's the biggest thing um my last patient one of my favorite stories I had a individual this I was down in the pharmacy and I was actually counseling his his girlfriend on she didn't have diabetes. She had reactive hypoglycemia for some unknown reason. And I connected with her because one of my technicians wanted me to talk to her because we had a glucagon refill, which is pretty not normal. And so I, I had some questions, you know, how come you're refilling glucagon? What's going on? And that's a whole nother story that I would love to talk about someday, but it was her significant other who leaned over and asked a question about metformin and, and we have partitions up because of COVID and I could smell the ketones come under the partition so strong Wow! I asked him in a very polite manner I said no offense have you been have you been drinking I said I, I smell a, a strong and it, it didn't smell like alcohol it was like you know that telltale ketone um, and I, I just asked him I was like are you diabetic? And he's like, yeah. And it's like, what do you take? And he's like, no, I don't know what's going on. I said, what's your A1C? He said, 15.4. Oh, wow. That's the highest I've ever heard of. Um, I've seen a 15 before. 15.4 is my personal highest. I've looked it up. 
depending on the sensitivity and specificity of the you know the machines you're using it can vary but holy cow physiologically that's that's insane that's the average right so that's over probably five six hundred somewhere around there and he's ambulatory after further questioning i find out he's lost over 100 pounds in three months so he's in a complete catabolic breakdown state probably in hhs um and so i urged him to go to the emergency room right away which he didn't saw him the next day and i'm like you don't understand how bad this is you need to go um we were able to get him transferred over to our primary care so we could keep a closer overall look on him psych and diabetic and in doing so i'm happy to say that within a a matter of like two months his a1c has a variability or his glucose his blood glucose on a daily basis has a total variability of 42. that's his range high and low It, it deviates 42 points and he's like right at 115 with that much variation. And we've done that, like I said, in such a short amount of time, this guy's found a newfound appreciation for everything. He didn't realize how bad he felt. He didn't know what was going on. And the worst part is he came out, he had been seen by a provider three times and he was given glipizide and Novolog as treatment. Wow. And so that just screamed to me. I I couldn't understand that one, but I I had to take him under my wing immediately and just, you know, we had to collaborate with his psych team and primary care and really start looking at things in depth to to get him going. And like I said, he's come full circle. He's not on a continuous glucose monitor. Um, I could only imagine how much we could get done if he was. He uses he uses a similar. I'm a big fan of the remote monitoring dashboards, and so the One Touch Vario products have a. They're they're still a finger stick, but they present data much like you would see in an in an ambulatory glucose profile hmm. on a continuous glucose monitor report, and so we're able to get so much data, eliminate so many assumptions, which just helps foster correct and appropriate therapy so much quicker. That is probably my favorite story thus far. To go from, you know, you said 15.4% to a blood sugar of 115. Yeah, with a variability of 42 points. That's amazing. And you said only two months. What's that? And you said only two months. Yes. Wow. That's magnificent. Yes. Wow. So, so here's the other challenge we're running into with that individual is now that he's in a, in a good zone, I haven't had testing data uploaded in 20 days and I've reached out, reached out, reached out. And I'm seeing, I don't know if you guys are familiar with glucose toxicity theory, where you see somebody's A1C, you know, low range. And then all of a sudden it just goes through the roof and I suspected that was glucose toxicity theory and it, it needed a quick bath of insulin to help bring back the, the beta cells that were stunned with the super physiologic level of glucose. And so a quick bath in, in some insulin, we were able to you know, preserve some of the beta cell function. 
and he's doing remarkably well considering where he was. Got a long way to go, but it's it's just game changing how how much his outlook has changed and how how much better he recognizes feeling. My phone to the bathroom is often his vision, his balance. And here's the biggest thing that I wanted to advocate for. Um, uncontrolled diabetes in a psych setting does not bode well for psych evaluations. Hmm. We know that elevated glucose levels you know, negatively impact our cognition, our ability to think, function. And so I want to make it a goal to have every diabetic that's in a psych setting so they they can get an accurate psych assessment because it does have such a huge impact on the overall picture and it clouds the diagnoses and what's really at work in the mind so that's my story I hope (laughs) it was it was valuable we love it we love it and I know I don't want to end the podcast without talking about one particular thing because I know that you are all about advocacy and you're very passionate about diabetes and your patient population. So the last question before we end for the night, um, I just wanted you to touch on all of the advocacy that you you know, wanted to talk about on the podcast and you wanted to share, like let this be your platform. Yeah, uh, continuous glucose monitors. Let's get everybody on them. As soon as we can, let's get as much information so we can prevent diabetes from eclipsing into diabetes. Um, The ones that are diabetic, let's get them, let's get them managed properly quickly. And so they can see the benefit, the biofeedback you can do. People are able to do their own home experiments. You know, I'm going to have fruit salad for lunch. Two hours later, what happened? You don't even have to prick your finger. It's just automatically recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, the report that comes out, we can we can get a, a, if you mark when you're eating a meal, I automatically get a two hour post in a report and I can, I can see what your raising glucose was for that period. And if it's over 50, we got to either look at what you're eating or adjust a dose. Um, making a new curriculum um, that would bode well for the SMI population not only would it be helpful for the population that I serve, but I think it would be replicable and easy to turn out to the general population because the general population struggles with diabetes. Um, it's embarrassing to say that we're one of the only species that we actually have to teach how to eat because we've adulterated our food source so much. Wow, yeah. I find it confusing to navigate myself. And one last thing, um, something I don't think we know enough about as practitioners, but there's a big push towards the plant-based diet. I have two patients who have gone completely plant-based. One of them was also on U500. He is completely off insulin as I speak. Wow. Um, He he eats like 80% carbs, zero fat. Um, So there's a whole new avenue that I think needs explore. We don't know enough about this. There's so much more to learn. Um, I just want to keep pushing the envelope, making changes, getting good outcomes, and making it easier for people to manage and understand. Um, I know there's tons of resources out there, but they're still hard to navigate and they're not made for everybody. 
And so if we could just come up with a simple set, and I know that's hard to do because diabetes has been around forever. Practitioners have been around forever, but we still don't have a real good method to, to teach individuals with lower literacy how to overcome this or how to manage it or poor resources. So anything we can do to, to help out there is just going to make the world a better place. Great. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on to this podcast, Ryan, and for just sharing your unique experiences providing diabetes management and education with the severely mentally ill population. Um, I just love your heart and I love your passion. Um, it was so great to hear your stories and to hear about the different ways that you are advocating for this really vulnerable population. Uh, Isabel and I, I know, are so happy that we could just have you on and have this conversation and be able to help advocate for just a very underserved population. So thank sure. you. No, I, I really appreciate, like I said, what you guys are doing and what you're providing to the profession of pharmacy. Um, you guys have only met in person once and you put together an awesome product and <laughs> hopefully somebody listens to this and gets something out of it and builds upon it. Yeah, I hope so too. Um, it's been wonderful doing this podcast with you, Isabel, and I hope that such these a pleasure. 12 episodes... Oh, what? <laughs> it was such a pleasure. I know. I hope these 12 episodes, like you said, Ryan, really help people um, and really help advocate for diabetes management and education. So thank you, everyone, for tuning in to our DSMES series, Giving a Shot About Diabetes. Thank you for listening to another episode of Beyond the SIG. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and others on the Pharmacy Podcast Network on any of your favorite podcast directories. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.